Hello, welcome to another episode of The High Ground, powered by Premier Companies. Ryan, how are you today? I am doing great. How are you? I'm really good. Now we've got Glenn Longaball in the yeah, studio Glenn's with us again. in the room. And we've got him with his farmer. He's going to have his farmer hat on, metaphorically. Okay. With us today. Right. But first, as always, Glenn, the question of the day. And uh, <laughs> this ought to be good. If your pet could talk. What would it say? Yeah. <clears throat> I know exactly what she's thinking all the time. <laughs> Feed me. <laughs> Are we going to the kitchen? Are we going to the kitchen? What's in the refrigerator? What's in the drawer? Right? I'm, that's all she's thinking about 24-7. And what is this pet? It's a big, fat, black lab. <laughs> who, who is worthless for any kind of duck chasing or anything, any, anything useful. She's absolutely worthless. She stays in the house. Yeah, she's pretty good about cleaning stuff up off the floor. Sure. Right? If you, well, you eliminate the need to chase a duck. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So feed me would be the thing your pet oh, would that, say. That's all she's thinking about. That's 20, hilarious. 24/7. Treats, treats, treats. Yep. Great. Great. Ryan? Okay, so we we have stray cats is what we have in the house. In the house. Yeah, oh, yeah. Yeah, stray cats. So I, I've always – so I talk to them. You know, I do talk to them when I'm walking through the house, and my wife makes fun of me. She says it's they Wait can't. A they can't How talk does that to you. go? What do you what, mean? What do you say to them? Well, you just tell them to move, or you tell them to get up here, or you know, whatever. You just have you just talk to them. You don't have a conversation with them necessarily, but if they could talk, and knowing one of them was rescued off the porch when it was like four degrees one night, a couple three years ago. Off I your porch sort of, or somebody else? No ours. Okay. No ours. I didn't. I don't go take other people's cats. A lot of times they. Just, well, they're always somebody else's cats. There's, I mean, the fact that people buy cats with oh, as many just crazy? free cats as there are, yeah. So, but anyway, so yeah, I've always in, kind of envisioned that it would sort of be like an episode of MTV Cribs for these stray cats. They'd be like, you know, I was destitute for a while, and then look at this. Look at me now. <laughs> look at this. This whole couch. I got a whole bed in there. So I don't know what they'd say necessarily, but I would hope they'd be grateful. <laughs> <laughs> How many you got in there? Well, there's three that are in there all the three. time, and one that she sort of just passes back and forth at her own accord. So, hmm. But uh, I'm a softie for stray animals. I really am. Oh, and that's uh, all they kind of have to do is show up in an inopportune weather event. <laughs> ah, come on in. <laughs> so Carla is not happy with me, and it's the this the, that's all they'll ever be because one more than – I'm the first. I make the the room for the next one. It's my absence that will make room for the next so, one. So, Ryan, I've got a question for you. Do your cats appear to be grateful? Never. That's what. I was no, <laughs> no, they could care less. Uh-uh. I, I saw a meme no. one time. It was a dog's diary versus a cat's diary, and the dog's diary was: "We're going for a walk. My favorite thing. My favorite thing. We're gonna get a treat. My favorite thing. My favorite thing. Right? It's rubbing my belly. My favorite thing. My favorite thing. Cats log." Day four sixty three of my of my captivity. <laughs> captivity. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You don't want to. You don't want to let that door open very long, or they'd all be gone. No, they probably went back in, but they would be. Like, no, no, no. So, anyway, so, so I was raised with them. You know, I that's my mom had them. So. Oh, anyway. we've got a, a house dog. It's a big lab. It's a silver lab, which are just a silver lab is just like a black lab or a chocolate lab or. Yellow Lab, except it costs about three times as much when you buy one. Um, and looks like a chocolate lab, kind of. But anyway, it would probably say... Uh, and it's a silver. I've never even heard of that. Yep. It's got kind of a different skin hair color, I guess. But 
anyway, it would probably say this place is nuts because um, I never had a house pet until they talked me into moving this one inside and then they've kept it clean and they've kept the house vacuumed and so i haven't had anything to protest about but but um he'd probably just say this place is crazy it's just always going and coming and in and out and in the kennel and it's always in the kennel when we're gone and but how big is it 120 pounds. <laughs> oh, yeah. It is a big dog. Well, I've had labs before, but they were all outside, and they were like bulls in china shops. I can't imagine one in the house. Oh, but. the tail. It just comes through, and <laughs> we can't have anything on the co- that's coffee table height, right? And it yeah. just – and uh, it goes down the hall, and it's like, bang, that tail just hits the wall. <laughs> God. Oh, my. So that's all I got for okay. what my pet would say. Yeah, yeah. Okay, All we'll right. kick him off. Well, Glenn, you got your farmer hat on today. I do. Not your agronomist hat, although you may have to go back and forth a little bit. But we had a, a grower was asking us about um, just kind of talk about the economics of farming. I mean, we go through a lot of things about the agronomics of farming. Sure. But a lot of the listeners may not be familiar with, with um, some of the things that impact a grower what do you call it? it? Gives you the vapors, right? You get the right. You kind of hit the panic button, or what are those things that that a grower thinks about, like with the commodity prices and input cost and cash rent, the things that are on a grower's mind uh, from an economic standpoint. Um, and I've seen you kind of broke it down field by field, which can get kind of disheartening. Sure. <laughs> You've broken it down as a as an enterprise. Right. But from a from a grower's mindset, I guess what's what's going through their heads as far as the economics of farming, and then kind of walk us through that um, that flow of how <laughs> you know the risk and reward sure. of farming. Yeah, it's so, not as glamorous as everyone thinks. As he makes it look. <laughs> <laughs> Do I make it look glamorous? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, you know, at the end of the at the end of the year, most times we have black ink and. Um, uh, you know, because of increased production. So we really, you think about the last 20 years, we really have only had a couple of, we've only had a couple of years that I thought were, um, you know, crazy stressful, right? Where you had the the opportunity to really lose uh, any significant amount of money, right? For the most of those years, we've had, um, you know, as long as you didn't live like a drunken sailor, we had opportunity to make to make money in those last 20 years. You know, you think about 2012, 2012 was a year where... Um, Explain that in depth, because we talk about that a lot. 12 comes up almost yeah, so, <laughs> in so, conversations and even on the podcast. Yeah, so in 2012, we didn't just have drought. We had biblical drought, right? And we had, um, you know, cornfields where, you know, corn is our largest investment crop, right? Uh, so we, we spent a lot more... Yeah, you guys are gonna have to. Uh, I'm not. Pro, I'm not a professional. <laughs> we are. Yeah, you are. You should see the cameras on Glenn, but Ryan and I are both moving the cameras up and closer. Yeah, <laughs> and he's very. And he says he's not a professional. He's been on what fifty percent of the episodes. Yeah, <laughs> and, uh, Glenn, we pulled him out of the doctor's office. Basically, he's he's going to leave here and go get some antibiotics because he's yeah, not so feeling well but. yeah that's that is all true so it's back all, to 2012 <laughs> yeah so you're asking me about 2012 
And you got me rubbing my forehead. That's my tell. <laughs> if we're playing cards and I'm bluffing, yeah. like, you see me rubbing my forehead, you know that I'm bluffing. So that, that's my stress, my stress sign. Poor so, Glenn's sliding out of his chair. Yeah, so I, I, we're like I, can't, I can't get any closer to this microphone. There you go. No, you're fine now. What I'm, what I'm not going to give it some kind of bug, right, for the, for the subsequent uh, Next one's virtual, so yeah. he's fine. Oh, that's good. It'll be that's West good. Lafayette. Outstanding. So, yeah, we talked a lot about 2012 because 2012 was just biblical drought, right? And, and uh, some perspective on that would be we had a lot of fields that only got harvested just to just to satisfy the crop insurance that, that they that there was nothing there, right? I just mean, to we're prove talking, that there was nothing. You could look at it, but they just still had to run through the field. That's right. And a lot of times what we ran in the combine in 2012, because when you have those really uh, suboptimal conditions, really dry conditions, what happens, Ryan, is that um, you'll have these um, – uh, mycotoxins, you know, the, you'll have these organisms like Aspergillus flavus set up for housekeeping, uh, which is a ear rot. And the corn that we did harvest wasn't worth anything, right? So a lot of times we were making recommendations, hey, just, you know, just close your machine up, run through the corn, try to run as much of that out of the back as you can, all that really light, loose, huh. fluffy stuff that was covered with mycelium because really it was unsellable anyway, right? So it was not uncommon in 2012, you know, the really, really good ground that has good moisture holding capacity was still making, you know, 100, 120 bushel. But um, a lot of the common hill ground was was less than 20 bushel the acre, right? So, really, really so low the levels. best ground was making less than half what it would normally make. That's correct. That's correct. And yet, um, you know, one of the things that's changed is the safety net. And I'm talking about the federal crop insurance program. That really kicked in in a big way in 2012. In fact, the thing that I, I was worried about and what other growers were thinking about was, is there a large enough pool of money to offset when you have this kind of this kind of drought, right? It was it's, widespread. It was widespread. It wasn't just southwestern Indiana or southern Indiana or you know the eastern Midwest. It was all the way across the country. And what happens on a year like that when, you, when you're that low on production is then the price kicks in. And of course, on crop insurance, it's revenue assurance. It's not, they're not just guaranteeing this many bushels. They're guaranteeing this, they're guaranteeing this many bushels at whatever the price is, uh, either during the spring. Um, you know, I say spring, it's a February time frame, and it's the December futures through February or the October, um, the December futures through October, right? So you, you price it on the monthly average of those two months. Well, by the time we got to October, uh, you know, corn was, you know, <laughs> in excess of, of you know, seven, uh, eight, eight dollars a bushel, right? Depending on the, uh, on the locality. And so those that had a crop were really flush, and those that didn't have a crop, your crop insurance guarantee was based off of this, this, um, this higher price. And so 2012 ended up being a really good year for a lot of growers, as long as they had crop insurance. But they didn't have crop insurance, then it was an absolute disaster. They were Doomed. Yeah, it was a disaster, right? Um, one of the reasons why why it worked out pretty well too was we had this biblical drought from the very get go, right? We had guys planting corn. There were some guys that were done planting corn by the initial planting date in 2012, right? So normally you shouldn't even plant corn for insurance purposes until like the the sixth of April. We had guys that were done planting corn uh, by the end of March, right? Because it was such a dry, warm spring. 
accumulated GDDs really, really quickly. And um, by the time we got into mid-May, it was obvious that we had a problem. And that corn should have actually started flowering in the first part of June. And yet it still didn't flower until the, the middle of July, right? So corn, which should not go dormant, right? It's believed wow. physiologically that corn doesn't go dormant, definitely did go dormant in 2012, right? And so, um, uh, yeah, it was pretty obvious we were going to have problems. Now, interestingly enough, hardly no one had claims. Almost everyone had claims on corn. Almost no one had claims on soybeans, right? So soybeans, even though they were crazy short and really stressed early on, they really didn't, um, you know, they were probably 25%, 30% off. So it depends on what your, mm. um, you know, what your, what guarantee you elected, right? Because if you want 80%, you can guarantee 80% of your approved yield, but it also is more expensive, right? And uh, most people at that time, you know, that's kind of changed too, right? The, um, I think the average grower has probably gotten more aggressive on crop insurance just because our inputs are so high. Right. I think that's what you had me here to talk about yes. today. It was just the fact that, you know, I think back two years ago, two years two years ago for for growers was really scary. Yes, we had six dollar corn, right? So two years ago at this time, you could have you could have um, if you looked at the December futures, we had six dollar corn that you could sell corn for. And and yet if you looked at what we were spending spending for nitrogen two years ago, it was in excess of a dollar oh, per yeah. pound. Right? Yeah. I mean you could spend um, without question, you could spend two hundred and fifty bucks on your crop nutrients for the year. Um, some some folks were spending in excess of three hundred and fifty dollars uh-huh. an acre um, for crop nu- you know, for crop nutrients. And that's a that's a big number. Right, and it takes a lot of bushels to offset that. It was a lot. It was like the first time a lot of retailers ever owned over a thousand dollar ammonia themselves. I mean, that was that was what it, that's what they had in it to get it to their facilities, and that was the first time we'd ever seen that. Yeah, it was um, it was scary times, yeah. and um, yeah, we had this big commodity price, but commodity prices they ebb and flow, and you never really know. I mean, there's no guarantees that you're going to have that, and. Um, you know, at the end of the day, it ended up being fine. The, the cool thing is, for some of the meetings we've done recently, I've been talking about potassium and and why they need to belly up to the trough on on potassium, right? Because, you know, P and K, I'm talking about phosphorus and potassium mm-hmm. prices, have been elevated the last couple of years. And yet today, uh, if you do the metrics, and Scott helped me with this, right? If you do the metrics, two years ago, it took 58 bushel just to pay, you know, 58 bushel of the corn you produced two years ago is what it took to pay for your nitrogen, your phosphorus, and your potassium. And that's with a pretty modest program. A year ago, it took 54 bushel. And <clears throat> last month, it would have took 39. Uh, right now, it would take about 40 bushel. Hmm. Right, So we're significantly less. So in some respects, we're in a better shape now than we were uh, the previous two years. Now, that being said, uh, crop protection has changed, right? The um, the premixes of crop protection are probably a little higher. They've they've appreciated last year and then this year. Uh, one of the things that's changed that's going to be an advantage to growers is, um, you know, some of the <clears throat> non-selective herbicides we use like Liberty and Roundup are significantly less, right, uh, this year than what they have been. Seed is up. I know that's kind of a concern for growers. Uh, but in reality, seed hasn't gone up. It looks like seed is appreciated 
disproportionately, but it's because there was two years that seed really kind of lagged, right? Especially two years ago, the the cost of, of seed really didn't go up much. And, and yet when you look at the value of seed to our, our productivity, uh, there's no question that's probably added more bushels than any other single thing, right? Uh, I saw a uh, Are you going to talk about the seven inches of rain thing? Did you see that? <laughs> uh, I did, but I wasn't going to talk about okay, that. I was, uh, was going to talk about Dr. Sotiris' work out of Iowa State. And um, basically, he's trying to, you know, we recognize that we've had a lot of genetic gain, right? That, that um, uh, you know, it's probably somewhere in excess of two bushels per year is what we've gained. Well, how much of that is actually from the genetics and what portion of that is from um you know, management, right? Increasing populations, increasing inputs, uh, managing more intensely. And um, boy, he took on a, uh, you know, you know, the size and the scope of this project that he took on was just unfathomable, right? <laughs> they, they looked at corn hybrids for the last 40 years, right? Because the, the seed companies keep a lot of this uh, germplasm in cold storage in, in, Perpetuity, right? Just for these, um, you know, and, and it, I'm, I'm not really the sure. The history what all, of all the seed that they brought to market, they've kept all those? Exactly. All those hybrids are kept in cold storage. There's some supply of that kept over. And, and so what they did was they took hybrids over the last 40 years, and, you know, and it was 80 different hybrids. So they had two hybrids, an average of two hybrids from each year. And then they managed some of it like it was managed at the time it was released. So you think about, you know, wow. the, the 80s, you know, I was a scout in the in the early 80s, and we were planting 19 to 20,000 plants per acre, right? Today we're at 34,000 plants, 33,000, 34,000. And so what they did was they took modern hybrids and these historical hybrids, and they uh, either managed them like they did the year they came out, or they managed them like we would today. And what they found was that it's about 86% of the gain came from genetics and, uh, you know, 14, 15% wow. uh, came from um, management actual practice. management, management oh, practices. Wow. But they took so many metrics. I mean, I would not do justice. <laughs> I'm not going to do justice to it, you know, giving him a, you know, kind of a blip on the screen here. But it, it was an incredible. Can we find it somewhere? Yeah, yeah, we could probably uh, get just you a, a link. We yeah, can link I, I could probably okay. send be you a pretty link. neat. Yeah, but let's get a, the link to that. Yeah, it was just a really, really intensive. They took lots of metrics, you know, trying to determine, you know, uh, what's the difference in biomass between corns forty years ago and today, right? Because we know that they're yielding more, and we know that they take up more nutrition late in the season, right? Tony Vine did a lot of that work, um, but it's really a function of is um, is the kernel size changing? Where where is the yield coming from? And, and we know that it's, it's actually bigger, heavier kernels is one of the largest metrics, right? And, um, and, and even that, you know, everybody's like, oh, well, the test weight's increasing. No, it's, we're not talking about the test weight. We're, talk, we're not talking about the density of, the, uh, of a, a, a measure of grain. We're talking about the actual kernel size and weight itself has changed dramatically. It would, <clears throat> would be interesting to see what those hybrids were 20, 30 years ago. And and how they would stack up, you know. Well, the growers talk about they they've lost this 
the their favorite hybrid that they used to plant because sure. we've got new stuff and and just to know that 80, 86% of it is just the genetic gain. Right. That's um we know it's not all of it but to, to be that much is considerable. Yeah, so most of the most of the um most of the studies we've had in the past were typically partnered with like Pioneer. And so I wouldn't be able to probably send you a link to that um, because obviously we're, mm-hmm. we're branded here. But this study was actually funded by uh, Bayer Life Sciences. So, yeah, I don't think there'd be a problem. And it's, it's, <laughs> there's just so much information there uh, to wade through because I think they had 12, I think he said it had 12 PhD students working on this. That's how many wow. metrics they were taking but above ground, below ground yield, just, uh, you know, plant structure, year height, kernel number. It was, it was a, um, it was an unbelievable hmm. uh, study. So, so you talked about uh, how many bushels per acre for the NPNK and going down, it was at 58 bushels there a couple of years ago, and now it's yep. 40 bushels kind of this year. Yeah, roughly, roughly 40 bushels to pay for crop nutrients. Yes, that's, just not, for the, that, that's not seed. That sure. doesn't pay for, um, you know, any any crop protection products, right? And so uh, it depends a lot, too, on, on how you manage the crop, right? So I'm one of those um, – <clears throat> I am an agronomist, right? So, so I tend to – you know, when you think about nitrogen, there's the economic – optimum in rate and then there is the agronomic optimum in rate well what's the difference well the economic optimum in rate is where you 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 get close to the top of the curve and obviously as you keep putting more on you you start reducing the return on investment and when that line gets to where you're no longer uh, increasing yield in a proportionate amount then that would be the agronomic optimum in rate when we think about the or excuse me, that's the economic optimum in rate. We think about the agronomic optimum in rate. We're saying, hey, how do we get the maximum bushels? Where is the top of the curve? Regardless. Yeah, yeah regardless of whether you're you're making an investment or you're getting a return on your investment. Sorry, I'm a little I'm a little foggy today, right? <laughs> <laughs> we like it. We yeah. we may have an advantage. Kind today, of refreshing. So, yeah, we That's might get him. We might get him on one. Uh, Talk about other things. You talked about input costs. What about what about cash rent? How do you how do you view cash rent? How do you how do you see that affecting farmers and and the other competition that you have for ground? Yeah, well, I'm afraid that they might be listening to this, so I better not be too forthright but <laughs> well not yeah. your not your landlords no, <laughs> clearly <laughs> no actually that probably keeps a lot of folks uh, you know that keeps a lot of folks awake right there's always this yin and yang how do you decide what is fair to, to a landlord and yet how do you protect yourself because you can get in more trouble with rent than probably any other single factor because it's coming off of the you know that's it, it may come off of the gross but it has a huge impact on the net right and so um, you know, I don't know how cash rents were set historically because I think everybody backed into their rent a different way, right? Some folks, it was, you know, they went from halves to thirds or 60, 40 to thirds. And then, you know, landlords, because they're divided up, didn't want to get a bill in the spring. So it's like, well, okay, we'll just go to cash rent or we'll go to, you know, a rent where it's based on, it may still be, your, your rent may still be based on production, but you're getting a smaller proportion. And I don't know what, what a fair number would be. To me, I'm thinking that probably uh, if a grower is not charging landlords uh, any input cost, a third is entirely too much, right? I don't know how you cash flow that. I really don't. So it probably should be based on, 
you know, in full disclosure, if you said, okay, what should the average piece of ground cost? It probably is somewhere between 20 and 25% is what it really should be. Uh, of course, we, we don't live in a perfect world. It's very competitive, and we have growers that are, that are offering crazy cash rents, and those guys are oftentimes the first ones to get in trouble, right? Because your, your landlord rarely, uh, they, they don't always need to see your rent appreciate, but they certainly don't ever like to see it go backward. Yeah, right. Right. That's the thing right. that gets. That's human going. nature. I mean, yeah. Once you, once you sell six dollar corn, you really don't want to sell four dollar corn. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. I, I I can tell you how I manage it is, you know, I've kind of have these loose contracts like most farmers do with my landlords, and um, uh, basically I have not changed my my rent values very much over the last several years. What I do is I pay them a bonus based on the previous year. And that way I have a little bit of cushion in there in case I would have a really bad year. Because here's the deal, right? Not every drought year, Ryan, is going to be like 2012, right? If we had a drought year where only we didn't get rain, but right. the Corn Belt does, and the commodity prices don't reflect that, that was what was different about 2012. No one had a crop. The price uh, escalated to this crazy number, and we all came out because our guarantees went up. Right, but if you here in Southern Indiana didn't get rain and you had a hundred bushel crop when everybody else is raising, you know, normal uh, yields, yeah, yeah, normal yields, then you are absolutely screwed. And um, it's you know those are the things that keep you awake at night. Sure enough, but uh, uh, you know, you, you, here's the thing: you can't dwell on that, right? The the old timers used to say the surest way to get a short crop is to plan for one. Well, <laughs> that's the you know that is um, that is as true today as it ever was, right? And um, it seems really easy. I, we started out talking about input costs because that's the time of year it is, right? We're all paying for inputs. And, um, you know, if I were to put a number on crop protection, you know, crop protection could be as cheap as 50 or 60 bucks an acre for just herbicides. But we're not using those herbicides anymore, right? It's, <laughs> by the way, those herbicides, that's a premix, and then it also requires adjuvants, and it also requires, um, you know, oftentimes we put other components in there to make it to work, and you still have to get it applied. Yeah. And you're saying, oh, well, I'm self-applied. Okay, well, you take that sprayer. <laughs> take, right. that, take that sprayer. $400,000. Yeah, take that $400,000, and then you divide it by the number of acres that you have, and um, you'll find real quick that there's. it's not like there's no cost to self-application. In fact, I swear you could have it custom-applied probably cheaper, right? And um, I think most people who own them, not most, but some have made that comment. I could get it done cheaper by you, but I can control when I get it done by me, which is yeah. maybe an argument that's lost now with, sure. with the logistics and the abilities and capabilities that we have. But, I mean, it's that's legit. I mean, sure. that's, if you yeah. wanted to go spray on Sunday, a lot of days, maybe that's yeah. it does work. Yeah, that's exactly but, right. So, so how do you decide when to sell? I mean, so, uh, <clears throat> so you're selling in, in advance before you've harvested it. Have I got a sign on me somewhere that says, this is my weakness, this is my soft <laughs> underbelly? We got him down. We're going to kick him. Chink. Yep, <laughs> found it. Well, just like most growers, Let's right? do this. Let's say, how does, a, how does a grower decide when to sell? Yeah, I, good question. You really need help, right? Yeah. And I think that uh, most of them, you know, I, I've often heard, you know, experts on the subject say, oh, well, you need to know what your cost of inputs are. And if you can make money at a certain price, well, you need to start selling. That's okay. okay. <laughs> well, I, I also have competition, right? And just because I took a price that was, I, I'm, I'm making the case that that's a little bit naive, right? Um, can I make money at $5 corn? And can I make money at $10 soybeans? Probably. 
but that doesn't mean I don't want $6 corn and I don't want $12 soybeans because if somebody else is getting that, then I'm in competition with them for rent and everything else, right? So so I think that's a little naive to make those kind of comments. But you do often need to know what your cost of production is and you need to put realistic figures in. And, um, you know, personally, I, I subscribe to a couple different um, – uh, companies that that help you market grain, and then uh, my local elevator. I've got a person there that I trust pretty well. They're kind of a pessimist, right? And and I think oftentimes, what growers need is you need to have somebody who's an optimist, somebody that's really creative, is constantly looking at options and different uh, vehicles to help make you more money, be more aggressive about selling. But you also need to have that person that's been there and done that and says, you know what. Sometimes you just need to make a cash sale because you can make money at that number. Yeah. Right? You need to have both of those people in your court. If you listen to one or the other, you're probably going to be disappointed. Hmm. Interesting. Sounds wise. Interesting. Yeah. Well, I've gotten there. <laughs> like most farmers, I'm sitting on corn. <laughs> the ones that got the real double whammy this Oh, you're waiting for the run. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He just rubbed his head again. Yeah, another tail. Yeah. I saw it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> he's out of. He's yeah. <laughs> so, so you never want to follow me when it comes to anything to do with marketing, right? So, so I I carried some corn into this year. It was more about taxes than it was around, than it really was around uh, speculating the price was going to go up. But you, do you remember this fall? They were talking about how hurt all the Midwest was, right? The, yes. The, the, the Western Corn Belt. Choked it all the way down to 277 bushels <laughs> uh, Oh, yeah. Northern <laughs> Illinois hurt. Iowa, you know, parts of Iowa hurt. Nebraska's just burn up. And yet we still raised a record crop, right? Well, the guys that really got the double whammy were the ones that went and bought a, you know, that built a bunch of storage this last year. And when you build new storage, it's highly irregular for somebody that just built a bunch of storage not to want to put corn in it, right? Right. And I'm going to put corn in it. If yeah, I built that bin. <laughs> you built that bin, you're going to put corn in it. <laughs> and, man, that's that's just kind of the kiss of death there, too. We talk about that a lot. Is that, uh, well, what's your what's your growth plan? Well, I think we need more storage. Okay. But but if the market's telling you to sell, are we going to keep it full? Yeah. No. <laughs> I, would, I would hope that would be our answer. Yeah. But. yeah. So, so, yeah, I think that um, – uh, and unfortunately, there's still entirely too much emotion takes place, and and of course, uh, cash flow is another thing, right? I mean, I'm I'm a little concerned because we've got all this, you know, we got a record crop on farm, and if the market would start to respond <clears throat> and try to hurt these folks that have, you know, all these funds that have taken short positions that are kind of keeping it beat down, if it ever would go to respond, I'm afraid that myself included, we'll all rush to get something sold. And that will immediately lock it down again. Uh, that'll lock it down again, right? Put it in a, you know, in a, in a bearish position. Position. So, so yeah, I think we may be here for a while. But I would suspect, right? I'm not a grains guru. I know nothing about marketing, uh, but it. But just as an agronomist, and uh, you know, thinking about traditionally how this works, it would be. I think we'd be pretty naive to believe that. That, um, that this gradient between corn and soybeans we have right now isn't going to narrow up. Either soybeans are going to have to come down, which I don't think is likely to happen because, you know, I'm not saying it couldn't. <laughs> but, right, sure. But it seems more unlikely because we're shorter on soybeans. But it's going to be, I, I think there'll be an attempt to buy corn acres for next year, right? If you're somebody that is the reliant on corn to do your business, 
then there sometimes is an advantage when most people never really contract all their crop, right? So you might call it like a loss leader. It's like charging a dollar for a jug of milk to get you into the store. Sometimes I believe that integrators will will bid up in the spring to ensure that they get more corn acres, and then <clears throat> that will allow them to take advantage of that down the road. Hmm. I think there's a I think there's a fair amount of that goes on. Interesting. So without getting too uh, into names and brands and all of that stuff, farmers are always inundated with the opportunity for the next technology. Uh, yeah. This is I'm talking about the wired stuff, not necessarily the new the new hybrids, but uh, something with new something with wires on it makes your tractor do better or yeah. makes your planter do better. Um, and everything comes with a bushel increase. Yeah, yeah, I had customers tell me for years when I was selling, if I bought everything that you told me had a two bushel increase on it, I'd make eight hundred bushel of the acre. But a lot of times, if you don't, you don't know until you try it. You see all this data that says this is good. So from a technology standpoint, we know what you need. You got to have nutrients. You got to have weed control. You got to have some seed out there. Some of those things you're going to buy. What what do you, what do you rely on from a technology standpoint that says even though input costs are high, commodity prices are low, I couldn't do without this technology because I know it helps my farm. Man, that's a really good question. Um, I, I'm, I, were you trying to lead me there, Brian? Not necessarily. I, I I mean I would think that it would be things like making sure you get your seed planted correctly. Um, obviously, I mean, there's a lot of, there's a lot of technology in that, that people look at it and go, I don't know. I mean, it's not like heated seats in a pickup truck. It it, it looks like an option, sure, but, but there's a return on it. So, 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 you know, we went through a period where almost any kind of spatial technology had a really high adoption and a lot of folks, um, are utilizing that to make decisions, but most people are, you know, it's color pictures and it looks really nice, but you know, uh, I'm not convinced that they use it to, to make decisions for the next year or even maybe even in the same year. Right. Um, I know that, uh, <clears throat> you know, climate when, when, um, uh, when I first adopted that technology and I could really kind of do a, uh, you know, a, a, a uh, an analysis of some of these farms, right, and cut out the bad spots and cut out, you know, the the uh, all the shading from trees and actually uh, be more objective about how I evaluated hybrids. It was game changing for me, right. And then and then the next thing that that uh, shows up is, uh, you know, wet spots in the field how much influence there is from the trees, right? I mean, I, <laughs> I haven't gotten plum carried away, but I can tell you that when you see how big the impact is of shading from trees and competition to the crop, it makes you want to go whack all your fence rows and all of your, your field edges, right? It makes you want to trim those back because it has a, a just a profound impact on probably not just the outside six rows where you don't raise anything or the outside 12 rows where you raise half a crop, but even as far as you know, two planter widths, even at 32 rows, there is still probably some impact from the border effect from, from fields. So that to me has made a big difference. Um, you know, I've, I, I don't have a, um, a drone for application, but I have employed drones for application, which Premier does that too. That's a, that's a technology that's a game changer, right? It's, um, it allows you to make precision applications uh, aerially on small, irregular shape patches. And um, uh, 
I, you know, it's something that I, you know, at times I wish I had one or I wish I had access to just go in and make spot sprays. I would love to just go in and be able to applicate uh, voids and uh, uh, riser pipes, you know, where you have terraces, that sort of thing. Cause those voids are always where your perennials and your really bad weed problems start is around those voids. Yeah, so that's you, where the seeds produced. Yeah. It'd yeah. really be, it, it'd really be nice to, and yet you can't hardly hire somebody to just come in and do those types of applications. Right. Yeah, it'd be a good spot for drones. Yeah. Go in there and just spray those one third of an acre or six acres of burr cucumber or all those types of applications. Absolutely. But, um, yeah, there's, there is, I mean, there's a plethora of technology. I, you know, I do believe that um, maybe we've maxed out this planter thing, right? And I don't want to make fun of precision planning, but that, that's probably what you were alluding to earlier. Well, and, and I think you said it. You objectively look at a field and say, these are my yielding areas, and these are the areas that for some outside reason, whether they're edges or they're wet spots or there's a different soil type, sand or whatever, I would think at least the ability to manage your inputs across those through a prescription would be, I mean, we do a fertilizer. And you talk about the pretty maps and the pretty pictures that come from a yield map. We all do something with them. Oh, absolutely. And, and having the technology to be able to do that yeah. is at least a step in that direction. Yeah. So. Yeah. So spatial technology that, you know, as soon as you started down that path, it, it, it dawned on me that, you know, for most people, they think that the promise of spatial technology is to, is to identify the bad spots and make them better with some kind of application. And yet that's really not the promise of spatial technology. It's kind of worked that way on Lyme, right? We can go in, take variable rate sampling, and then make Lyme applications. And that is probably the Lime's most... Lyme's the quickest payoff. Yeah, that's, that's probably the sure. most successful yep. single... Um, you know, when we think about spatial technology and the promise of spatial technology, that's probably the, 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 the best success story. But when it comes to just jacking up crops in the middle of the field... Um, what is probably not well recognized is that the places that have the best crop actually are the places that respond to the most inputs, right? And so if you have a place that is not responding, it's got, if you've got a bad place in the field, that's not where you spend your resources. You right. actually spend your resources on those better spots. So if you've got a field that is in terrible shape, I'm not saying you abandon it, but that's not really the value of spatial technology. The value of spatial technology is to, is to, find those fields that do have lots of yield potential and jack them up even farther. Yeah. And adjust your spend elsewhere. Absolutely. Right. You know, last few years we've talked a lot about fungicide and, and um, trying to control tar spot. Well, if you got a field that's been struggling all year for whatever reason, too hot, too dry, too cold, too whatever, uh, is that really the place where you're likely to see the biggest return on investment or the field that's absolutely been rocking and rolling, right? It's the field that's been rocking and rolling. It's probably going to give you the much larger return yeah. on investment, and that's where you should spend your first dollar. So sometimes that's a little counterintuitive for growers. Yeah, it would be. Yeah. Yep. Ryan, that's about yeah. all I have. Yeah, Do you have anything else? Nope. I think that was good. I appreciate yeah. it. That's, cool. uh, that's what we were asked about. I mean, we, people want to know. It's my pleasure. We'll send you to Walgreens and get you some medicines, and you'll be feeling better. <laughs> Thank you. All right. Well, that's Thanks, another man. episode of The High Ground, powered by Premier Companies. If you like what you uh, have been watching and listening to, please like and subscribe on YouTube or, or the other platforms. And Ryan, Glenn, Thanks. have a good day. All right. Thank Appreciate you all. It. Thank you.